As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey folks, you might notice that this episode does not have any commercials. In fact, most of the ads this summer are not going to have any commercials. So if you want this show to keep being made, I would like your support. Go to patreon.com slash pretty much pop and sign up for a very small monthly donation to show your support for the show, to avoid hearing what commercials do arise in the future, and to have access to the bonus discussion that we record after every single episode. It is an absolute bargain that is patreon.com slash pretty much pop. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, having min-maxed our stats to be really high in constitution and dexterity, which are unfortunately not apparent in the audio medium. Today we're talking about tabletop role-playing games, the most famous of these being Dungeons and & Dragons, and their place in our culture. I'm Mark Linton-Meyer, 13th level chaotic neutral rogue, a subclass arcane trickster. I'm Erica Spires, and I have to say I'm a little bit nervous about attending my first satanic ritual. <laughs> I'm Brian Hurt, and today I'll be using my gaming dice to make all my decisions and form all my opinions. I'm Amanda McLaughlin, and I didn't know this was audio only. I put so much time into this makeup and these prosthetics. I'm so pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Amanda. If only you all could see her costume. And Brian, just so you all know, did hold up a pair of dice. These are my that's giant D6s. I'm already, by saying D6s instead of six-sided dice, I have that's the nerd shibboleth oh my God. for being a gamer. But now we know. When I would DM, if people would roll a one on a 20-sided dice, a critical failure, then they would go to the punishment table. And that involved rolling the big squeezy dice of shame. Let's introduce our guest more thoroughly. Amanda, you are the host of some things. Tell us about those things. Yes, my name uh, is Amanda McLaughlin. I run a podcast collective called Multitude. And I am a self-taught podcaster. Now it's my full-time job. And I help other podcasters make a living by doing stuff like ad sales and taking care of the paperwork and business uh, while they can run their podcasts, which is kind of a dream for me. And I am, most germane to today, a player on Join the Party, which is a storytelling podcast told through the rules of Dungeons & Dragons 5e. So we're currently playing a modern-day, kind of like very near-future superhero campaign in a sort of alternate reality metropolis in upstate New York, which is very exciting for all of us as New Yorkers. And I play a a monk called Aggie O'Hare, who is a groundskeeper and custodian, and just kind of like lesbian about town, who's also a monk and a healer and a, uh, a superhero called Preserver. And have you ever played this game or any variation of it, not as a performance, not while being recorded? All of my RPG learning curve has been on mic, which let me tell you, a bit of an introduction. But no, I started playing D&D four years ago 
in the pilot recording for Join the Party. And it was exciting for us because we really wanted to make a D&D show that would welcome in new players and that didn't require any kind of pre-existing knowledge in terms of experience playing the game or also the sort of like pop culture references that, you know, a lot of folks I think are expected to know in geek spaces, particularly, you know, four and a half years ago when we were starting to do this. So it was exciting for me to be the new player because when I had a question, when I didn't know what was going on, we were able to stop and explain that in game. And so we also released with our pilot a a sort of tooltip track, a version of the first two episodes that teaches people how to play D&D, which honestly was very helpful for me as well. There's something very Truman Show-like about that, of doing this with such an audience, going through your baby steps all the way to being a pro gamer. Yeah. That's awesome. I think, Mark, if ever we needed to go through our priors on this around the table with gaming, we better do that. Let's start with Erica. She's a longtime gamer. It's a continual issue here, I got to tell you, Amanda. I'm not a big gamer because I'm extremely competitive and I'm a musical theater person. So I have to be competitive, I feel like, in my audition. So uh, when I come home, I want nothing to do with competition. So I have never played, but I'm actually interested in D&D and in actually playing one day if I could get a hold of like understanding the rules because it is more of a story forward game. And I do like watching video games, especially ones with a great story. So yeah, haven't played, but I know a little bit about it because I find the storytelling fascinating. And this is not one that is leaked into your world through your husband, like almost every other geek thing that we look at. He played it. I think he did some campaigns when he was in high school. So he has bona fides, but I have never been around him while he has played or been a part of it. That's why I love D&D media so much. There is such an explosion in the last, like, I'd say two years, but specifically, I'd say two years, but almost broadly the last five years as well. Um, But having so much D&D real play material, like video series and streams and podcasts where you watch people play their campaigns. It for me, too, I love uh, speed runs. I love watching video games like I love games done quick. For me, playing games is, is not like the most fun thing, but I love watching them. So I think that for folks who either don't have the time or the access to people with rules, you know, and explanations, or they don't have a game master and they don't want to be the game master and they're sort of, you know, in a, in a rock and a hard place, um, being able to watch things like Dimension 20, which to me was my real like entree into D&D as a whole, besides being a player. I think it's just so valuable because then you have the confidence and the skills to play a game yourself or to even GM a game yourself. So I think Brian and I are in a similar boat in at least the beginning of the story where we both ran into D&D. You know, I, I got the basic set as a gift when I was nine, 10, something. And, you know, so late eight, late 70s, early 80s. And it's not something you can do by yourself. No. <laughs> and so I had... I don't know. Abed does. <laughs> clumsy attempts doing this with just individual friends. Eventually, we was playing. Actually, it was a we had a place called Gamers Paradise open in the mall, which just so like r- buying more games and reading these. And so it was actually, I think the first games I really played for real, like as a DM, was Tunnels and Trolls, which is just a slightly simplified, completely ripped off version of Dungeons and Dragons. You know, was running campaigns and things like around sixth grade, but that was very clearly labeled as something that was deeply uncool. And so I think even by the time I met Brian in middle school, I didn't do that anymore. However, we did get a little into other role-playing games like Paranoia was one of my favorite ones that I would run games in, even in early high school, I believe. But even that, oh, that, you know, was something that I, along with video games, along with a lot of geek stuff that now I, I rediscovered, sort of grew out of. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. And it was only then as an adult that I actually hooked up one of my many brothers-in-law 
had been running a campaign with people who had been astronomy grad school friends with him. So I did a campaign with him for 10 years with the same characters that he was running and then started another one, only stopped due to the pandemic. But they've kept doing it. I just found something maybe to get into that as a remote activity, I couldn't focus on it as well. But I'm eager to get back into it pretty soon. It was a joy playing with Mark when we were youngsters. Him with the actor voice and paranoia in particular, there was, it was in a post-apocalyptic world and none of us quite knew the truth of the world we were living in, but there was the benevolent evil computer and Mark would say, hello citizens. And he would do this (laughs) shtick and it was probably too much work for him. But as as a player, I really enjoyed it. My very beginning with D&D goes back to actually reading an article in Games Magazine. So like the intersection of my nerdiness goes all the way into that. And it was just a review of it in the early 80s. And I said, I got to get that. And of course, I had it. I owned the game for years before I played it. And I think the first time I played was in a group of had to have been 14 boys sitting around someone's den. And we were just totally playing. I wouldn't say wrong because playing those early editions right was it was almost unplayable. So I, I kind of stand by what we were doing, even though we were probably just goofing. But as an adult, more than anything, it's even pre-pandemic, the group of four or five people, finding a damn time to play is really hard. Job and the kids and the meeting and the dog and the whatever and the whatever. It was always a struggle. And then the pandemic, I just haven't played since that began. So I too would like to do it. Listening to your podcast, Amanda, gets me thinking more and more about the idea of a DM-less game where yeah. everyone shares the load of storytelling and important things kind of either happen through mutual. It gets into um, improv a bit and all deciding what a good decision is and a fair challenge as things come up at you. Wait, really? Yeah. I didn't even know you could do it without a DM. Oh, for sure. For those of you who don't know what a DM is. Tell us, Erica. Dungeon Master. We just call it a, a GM, a Game Master. Oh. Yes. And in fact, we've been playing Pathfinder. So people that didn't like the changes in the Dungeons and Dragons rules, and so went off and created their own books that were basically the same thing. And But you know now there's a Pathfinder version too. So it is something that unlike we had a Lego episode with, that is really tightly to a particular corporate overlord Tabletop role-playing, less so. There's still Wizards of Coast, you know, kind of leads the way. That was owned by Hasbro, owning D&D now. But there are other things, you know, and still be sort of a full participant. It's not like Lego, where you're either with the corporate overlord or you're using crappy knockoff. Yeah, and there are a lot of games, too, that are, like, if you Google kind of one-page RPGs, that's kind of the phrase that they are literally on one page. It is easy to understand. Normally, you only need kind of regular dice, a D6, as Brian was saying. (laughs) <laughs> and you with your friends can do the game together, which is often a really great way to get started. And we hear from our audience, too, in, in Join the Party that a lot of people, you know, either don't have campaigns, haven't found them, they lost them, you know, they, they moved away from their hometown or from college or whatever it might be. And, you know, you want to fill that void in your heart. And so feeling a part of someone else's campaign by watching the story unfold, you know, week by week and following along sort of fills that void a little bit. Now, tell me how it works without a dungeon master. As the the noob here, I know there are, that you get character sheets. I just assume those things come from a DM. But if you're doing it all together, how do you decide who gets the really cool attributes? Brian? Well, I think that part gets decided the same way that a regular game is everyone builds their own character to play, regardless of, okay, we're going to have to go back. 
D&D stands for Dungeons and Dragons. And <laughs> No, do you have like specs and you can only have like, say, if you're going to have this many points in this category, you can only you can only have a small amount in the other category. Is that how it works? There are different ways of rolling characters. You know, I think when I started, it was supposed to be purely random. Like you take 3d6 and you roll each of your attributes, which are your personality characteristics, which we should talk more about the attributes and the way of thinking about humans as personality characteristics. Yeah. Like just the fact that there are three different kinds of intelligence. There's intelligence, there's wisdom, there's charisma, which is kind of, you know, emotional intelligence relating to people. And, you know, I remember very vividly one of the best parts of the recent Pathfinder basic rules that I looked at was like, here's an example of somebody with a really high wisdom score, but really low in the other ones, like that you could create these different kinds of idiot savants. And it does sort of reward you in min-maxing. That is what, you know, so, so often the modern way of playing it is you get a certain pool of points and you can, you know, you kind of start with 10 of everything, but then you can add them. So it's like a lot of video games where you can add a certain amount. And so you could be a very nice, well-rounded person and everybody has like 12 in every slot, but usually you want to get at least one up to 18 or close to there. And then you have to really cheat on something else. You have to really, you have to be really <laughs> bad at something. Right. I did listen to Amanda a little bit of, I listened to that kind of intro podcast where you guys did yeah. explain the attributes. And I guess one of the questions I had as I was listening to that was, are those randomly selected or do you all tend to base them on your own personalities? You definitely bring up a great point, which is you can play it either way. You can sort of roll it randomly if that would be really fun for you, or you can decide to sort of array them in a strategic way. And so I like a real sort of character-based decision-making where sometimes in game two, I'll make the decision that I know is not necessarily the most optimal one, but it's the one that would be true to my character. And I think particularly in playing D&D for media, you know, it's really important to me that the the sort of character comes through and that's what's driving the storytelling. Um, Smart. Yeah, to answer your question, people can also also be extremely strategic and say, well, I'm playing a monk. And so these are the things that a monk is good at already. And so I will either compensate by adding my points into categories that my sort of like class and the architecture of my character does not give me advantages in, or let me lean super hard. Let me min-max. I'll put all my points into the things that I know I'll be good at. And like, I can't, you know, I can't uh, heal anybody, but I can sure punch him. Or, you know, I can definitely lie and do all of my, you know, sneaking and deceiving, but there's no way that if you, you know, ask me a question, I can know the history or the magic of this place. But I think you bring up a great point, too, in your sort of DMless question, which is what I assumed going into d and I was like, well, surely someone's in charge, right? Like, surely somebody, you know, is deciding what's happening. Someone's keeping track of the points. Someone's deciding if I win or lose. I have to, like, make my case to a judge. And then the judge tells me if the thing I said was buckwild enough to merit me doing it. Yeah. But that to me is the like the central beauty of the game is that the dice are the whims of fate and you know your dm or your gm doesn't have to be the good or bad cop being like yes you win or no you don't because at the end of the day it's up to the dice you know and you can be as creative as you want but the when you make a wild decision or you try something exciting ultimately the dice tell you if you're if you're successful or not and so people uh, rotate dms in their campaigns people don't have dms in their campaigns and kind of take turns in deciding the story or they follow a pre-written story, you know, where it gives you kind of tools to figure out where you're going and what's there. Or like us, you know, we show up every week and our DM, Eric Silver, you know, kind of brings us a new challenge or a new plot development. But in this campaign of Join the Party, we used one of these kind of collaborative world building games called A Quiet Year by Avery Adler, um, who's an independent game designer who's fantastic. And the game is a collaborative world building game. So we were able to kind of all go around and in turns decide where are we? What is the history of the city? What are the neighborhoods? What is the local cuisine? 
come up with the mountain lobster. It's all about crawfish in Lake Town City and get to decide throughout the history of the place and decades, you know, how this setting came to be, which for us was a really good mix between there is a DMGM and like the story ultimately is is sort of architected by him. But all of us are really invested and we can say with confidence when we're in a certain neighborhood, oh, yes, this is what's in this neighborhood. And it makes it quite kind of collaborative in that sense. And I think a really talented dungeon master will or game master will let the players go in a direction that maybe they hadn't thought of originally as long as it's not breaking the game. The joke is you could always like the classic kind of old school campaign starts in a tavern right where you're getting a quest. And it is the prerogative of all the players to say, yeah, that's stupid. I'm going home. Like, okay, great. That was a good campaign, everybody. But we didn't achieve anything. I mean, if you were hoping to go adventuring, you're going to kind of have to, if not stay on the tracks, at least go parallel in the direction of the tracks, more or less. You don't have to be the person. You can be the dog and not the person walking the dog, but you have to be going more or less in that direction. And that's where, and again, going straight to a DMless game is kind of a little off the walls, but it is also what it speaks to is it is the role of everyone to tell the story. And the worst games are the ones where the players just want the DM to tell the story and they are more like watching a movie. So, for example, during combat, when you just miss, I prefer to tell that it's a near miss and have the player, if I'm DMing, have the player say what happened, how like the arrow that you know, whizzed by the orc's ear and got stuck in the... I mean, like, that's not my job. I'm not going to do that for everybody. If you if you want to have some fun with it, like, help me describe what's going on here. I'll let you know what's happening, or you can figure out what's happening, but tell the story with me. It makes me picture a battleship game in which somebody, people are trying to do that. <laughs> like, instead of just E4, hit, see, like, and the sizzle of the, the, the missile on my battleship. Is it? I've never heard someone try to do that. <laughs> Amanda, do you uh, tend to enjoy this, I guess, newer form of D&D where you are based in a kind of current real world rather than uh, the more traditional D&D games, which are, I guess, based originally on Tolkien, the Tolkien universe? They definitely are. In a lot of the systems of D&D, you can definitely hear that um, and feel that. But so much of what I love is the the homebrew, the stuff that people come up with on their own and then sort of use D&D as the engine to power that world. And our first campaign was definitely a sort of high fantasy set campaign. There were, you know, city-states, there was a king, there was a prince, and we showed up at the prince's wedding and his husband is imperiled. And that was the beginning of our first campaign, which is exciting in its own way. And to me, felt very like this is what D&D is. But in a new campaign, I don't know, like in a, in a modern day one, A, for us, you know, in starting this campaign in 2020, like we, we want to be able to talk about things like power, responsibility, you know, who's in charge of like helping communities. Um, what does it mean to, you know, self-determine and for us, you know, to see different like genders, sexualities, um, kinds of people in the world that felt very sort of natural to do in a sort of like part escapist, but part kind of getting at real issues from the side where it's not, you know, a city that we know of in the U.S. today. We started the world in very early 2020. So COVID is not present, you know, like we started world building this in late 2019. And so being able to spend the last year and a half, like building that out and having adventures in that city. It's nice escapism for you, right? It's a really fun way to have spent the last year and a half. Yeah. A COVID yeah. RBG would be <laughs> terrible. Just de- depressing. Let's not. Mm-mm. No. Unless it was like a plan to like battle COVID and like some great world could come out of it. 
that could be fun. We're, we're just going to need a cleric. I just know that for sure. We need a <laughs> healer. <laughs> for some people, like it's communication is such a huge thing in figuring out your, and it's like very boring to say, but like in figuring out, you know, your game and your play style and what you as players want to do. You know, it's, it's so true, Brian, that like if you're in a party with people who are not trying to play the same game as you or get the same experience as you out of your campaign, it is really difficult. And D&D forums online are filled with like basically etiquette questions of, you know, like this player is, you know, not doing the thing that I want or my GM or DM is not taking into my, you know, my considerations um, into mind, like what do I do? And so there's so much possibility to play the exact kind of game you want to play but you got to sit down and like have those discussions and ask those questions and figure out what it is that you want to get out of it yeah there's definitely a it's, it's a little bit like dating and having to find a good gaming group and there have been people who i like but i don't like to game with and if you listen to this podcast you know who you are and you may not like to game <laughs> with me and that's fine but you, it, it does have to be the, the right mix. And there's people who are really want to play in a backstabby sort of way because that's what that's how they're role playing. And some people just that is not what they want to do with their free evening is be in a party where they are fighting the people they're adventuring with. And it it just doesn't work. And sometimes the same people will be good in one campaign and not in another for whatever reason. Brian, I would say you don't have to be backstabby because as long as you're coming at it from like, I'm the hero of my own story, you're going to have your own needs and wants, right? So like, why would you need to be backstabby? You're already going to be in contention with somebody else just naturally because you're a different human. But that's how they are role playing their character. I know. That's what I'm saying. It's like, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm going what's, to, what's that over there? I'm going to shiv you with my... I hope these people are listening and they stop playing like, no. Play however you want, I guess. I don't know. I'm no expert. I'm just throwing in ideas. But roll, roll persuasion. Let's see if Brian uh, believes you that you're agreeing with him. <laughs> <laughs> he, he never will. We're, we battle it. We battle it too much. I do appreciate good role playing, though. And Mark, you were talking about, and I think Amanda also talking about min-maxing this idea that you'll go really high in a stat that is useful for your character, and then you're low in something else. And... For example, going really high in charisma because you're a sorcerer and then going really low in intelligence, you actually have more fun playing a stupid person. The high charisma is good for casting your spells, but being really likable and dumb can just be super charming, especially if maybe that's not how you see yourself. And speaking of seeing yourself, sometimes Google what people would give themselves as their own scores. And it's you got a lot of high intelligence, low strength people playing D&D. It's pretty entertaining. Totally. I was interested, Amanda, that you guys chose to do something in the modern age, but still use Dungeons and Dragons rules, because there are RPGs that are designed for superhero stuff. I've never played any of them. Maybe once at one Gen Con I went, I, I think I played one, but I see like mutants and masterminds and supers, and there's a Marvel one. There are quite a few of them. There's also GURPS, I should clarify, so because I took that long time off of D&D, then when I got back into a campaign, I have just throughout been like the least experienced person <laughs> in my group. So I, it's not even just the game master that is supplying things. It's like other people in the group with me that are like, know how to play my class way better than I do and are <laughs> instructing me. But they, they all had, you know, a, a lot of rooting in like GURPS, this generic universal role playing system. So. That is sort of designed that, yes, you can do something in a fantasy dungeon setting. You can also do something in a, a futuristic space setting, etc. Yeah, what was behind that? We're going to have in the modern day, but I'm going to be technically a druid. 
Yeah, we're really interested in reskinning. And our DM Eric wrote a guide called No Capes, all about kind of how to reskin classes for D&D. Meaning like, okay, this is the idea of the monk or the idea of the sorcerer or the wizard or the druid. Like, what does that actually mean? Where do they get their power from? What motivates them? What are they inherently good at? And again, kind of liberating ourselves and unshackling ourselves from the idea of high fantasy. Like D&D is a very cool engine to tell certain kinds of stories. If it's kind of like an epic and somewhat conflict driven, even if it's not like combat necessarily, there's some kind of conflict. If it's a story that is being driven by that, then D&D is a great system for it. And also the the genre of a D&D podcast of D&D real play media is exciting. It's the one we started in and, you know, one that we are, you know, kind of proud to be a part of and wanted to stick to. So being able to kind of get to the heart of our characters and say, you know, what does magic look like for this character? What does magic look like in a world without magic and instead with superpowers? That kind of creativity to us is, is really fun. But Masks um, is one of those sort of game systems that is all about teenage superheroes or people of superpowers and uh, it is incredibly fun it's incredibly good I highly recommend folks play masks because it's less kind of intensive like rules and numbers wise but it's really all about emotions and the emotional journey of a character and when something goes poorly the consequence is not necessarily oh you, you don't get to do it like you have your powers you're good at your powers and then the dice help determine you know what are the consequences is it successful but with a cost questions like that so how many different factions are there traditionally Different classes. Yeah, classes, races, whatever. Yes, is it classes? Is that what we go by? There's both classes and races, which I'll put an asterisk on because lots of elements of that are definitely problematic. But how many classes? Are there 10 classes? 12? Do you guys know? I don't know. I think because they're, they're always like subclasses. So like basically, it's ironic that most of the real play podcasts I'm familiar with, at least they seem to be most effective when there are fewer players. So you have three players, uh, Adventure Zone that I know you, that I've listened to a lot of that you was one of your early inspirations three players, but normally you need at least four to balance it out so that you have your your meat shield, you know, your fighter type, you have your magic user, you have your cleric who's going to heal people, and you have your rogue who's going to be able to do, you know, open the locks and stuff. And like, that is sort of the bare minimum. And then there are just all these like combinations and variations and subclasses among those. Okay, so if we took, you're talking about reskinning, what do you think some of the the most successful or exciting reskins that you all have done with those basic characters? It's a great question. I I am just thinking so much about a heist team and how I think about putting together a D&D party, like putting together a balanced heist. Like you want different people to be good at different elements. And, you know, I don't have to be good at hacking if I have a hacker on the team, that kind of thing. But in our world, I think my favorite thing is when Eric uses monster stats to be our foes. And instead of having like a giant octopus or whatever, like you have people that use those stats to have different powers that then he interprets in a, in a you know, really fun and like superhero driven way. Um, so recently, for example, we fought like the Italian mob and the members of the mob had different stats from like monsters that would normally be, you know, like non-humanoid and like monsters that you kick or punch or whatever. But these mobsters were able to fight together with those kind of packed dynamics that the character from the monster stats actually have. So the beauty for me is that I don't necessarily see all of the mechanics behind the scenes. And in our show, we have an after party every month where we talk about all of the stuff that happened and the mechanics behind it and answer listener questions and stuff. And so that is often where I hear like, oh, wow, that was a wearable stat. Like I had no idea because in our game, you know, I am just encountering the thing that's in front of me. And so in terms of like sharing the balanced load of the heist, producing a podcast also, it's really exciting for me to be able to like show up I just get to worry about you know making choices that are right for my character and trying to advance the plot and then you know I deal with all the finance and accounting and ads and and stuff behind the scenes Amanda do you know how much your DM 
cheats in order to make things go smoothly. In terms of the <laughs> roles, for example, to avoid a total party wipe, for example, <laughs> or just to make things go in kind of the direction that everyone hopes. I, I know I'm always doing that. The, the numbers are the numbers, except when they're not. We have never fudged a role on Join the Party, which is very a point of pride for us, except for one very important role at the end of our first campaign where the player's role succeeded, but the player chose to fail, um, which is like a thing you can do. And he was like, you know what? It'll be more interesting if I fail this. I'm just, I'm going to see that role. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to fail this. And so it's, it is very exciting for us. And I think Eric does a good job of kind of calibrating combat to fit our levels and our characters, but no one's had to do a death saving throw that I can recall, which is not again, how everybody plays. But for us, that's the exciting thing. Like it would be fucking devastating to, <laughs> to have a, a PC you've gotten to know over the course of a year and a half die. So my, my other players too, uh, my co-players, Brandon and Julia are particularly good at magic and then being a barbarian and punching uh, respectively. So we get to approach combat from a really fun perspective where I as the monk get to like jump across the field or like you know run up the wall or you know go around the back and try to like do something not exactly sneaky I'm not a rogue but I do get to sort of do things more from like a creative or sort of side angle which I really appreciate for our listeners PC stands for player character or a character that one of the players is controlling versus oh, thank an you NPC, too much of an insider is someone in the world that the DM dungeon master controls well it's also just that death is not the end that you just collect a bunch of diamonds and your party maybe drags you around for a, a session or two, and then you get to be resurrected. Or maybe you don't, don't want to be resurrected and you want to start a new character. And so there's always that option. Yeah. It's also a question like in, you know, we don't want to kill anybody. Like we've never murdered anybody in this current campaign. And so that's not what we're interested in doing. You know, we don't call the cops and we don't like send people to jail. That's not like the answer to conflict in our campaign. And so something that we've, I think, all been more conscious of and, and growing about in the last year and, you know, 14 months or whatever, is when I see a, a villain or somebody trying to steal something, heist something, enact something, I don't say like, stop, you villain. I ask like, what do you need? Like, what's wrong? What's going on? Because, you know, people generally do things when they're in need or hurt. And so that's been a very, I think, interesting lens on conflict and on storytelling that I would not have been conscious of in 2019 when we first started. I love that personally. As far as creating a compelling story, is it more interesting or less or just different? I think it's different. I think it is really interesting to have antagonists that have interesting motivations or that want something or whose ideas are legitimate and lead you to say, you know, what is actually right? Our characters are aligned with the mayor of Lake Town City, Dr. Mayor Morrow, who's a very like, Doc Brown, Miss Frizzle combo um, for, for any fellow kids of the 90s. It's very exciting to me. And she is not all good, you know? Like, there are some ways in which just kind of hegemonic power over a city for 30 years. You know, there's going to be some just kind of, like, evil by neutrality or evil by inaction, you know, creates bad consequences. So being able to, you know, have kind of complex thoughts and, like, ever-evolving loyalties, I think, is is really fun for us versus those guys are evil, we're good, let's go, you know, conquer them. <laughs> like, when you, when you step back a little bit, there's quite a sort of imperialist tone to a lot of kind of high fantasy plots. Do your characters in your world, do you actually follow the, the sort of the standard alignment grid that appears in Dungeons and & Dragons? And so for Erica and maybe our listeners, there's this idea that you're either good neutral or evil on the morality scale and either your lawful neutral or chaotic lawful neutral or chaotic in terms of how you follow the rules of whatever society you're in and so 
you see charts all the times, right? Of like which Star Wars characters fall into the different ones. But is that even useful for you, Amanda? And is anyone ever really any, I doubt whether we as people have an alignment because mine's always shifting, I think. But what about you for your characters? <laughs> is it something you select for the purpose of trying to role play? Or is it something that comes out of how you role play? Or is it just not something that you worry about? I don't think that is as relevant in D&D 5e. And as people familiar with previous systems, do you agree with that? It, it feels like a thing that used to be more useful, but is not now. When I started playing the newer 15 years ago with the new group, the new group 15 years ago, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, they, they said, we don't, we don't use alignments. That was definitely a thing when I was yeah. trying to play as a very young person and, you know, was reading articles about like, is it healthy to like, we're going to play an evil can, you know, group <laughs> and we're going to go around and just be murdering people. And is that like, is that a good fantasy life? And, you know, I think this alignment issue gets at, and it intersects with the idea of races and monsters and things. It seems like essential to the the kind of fantasy that this is trying to allow you to do that there is good and evil and you can slaughter whole races of things because they're because? just bad. Question they mark? were, you know, <laughs> Saruman corrupted the elves and made them into the, the evil orcs and the orcs cannot be redeemed. But of course, once you've kind of introduced that, then like it is fun to play with that and like, oh, but I want to play an orc or, or some, you know, as a PC, I'm, I'm one of the good kinds, but there's still like, even you pointed us helpfully, Amanda, at something that Eric, your partner and dungeon master wrote about Dungeon Dragons has an anti-Semitism problem that even in the dwarves, right? One of the classic player character races that they were intentionally designed after Jews. And they, they really like their gold and they have their very vengeful, you know, all these just terrible stereotypes. Yeah, it's the one thing that C.S. Lewis <laughs> and Tolkien could agree on, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Much less who the orcs and things are supposed to represent, you know, and, and in Lord of the Rings, like, oh, is there any black people? Oh, they, they must have come up from the south where Sauron has corrupted everyone. It is so transparent and so many people have been doing such useful and like emotionally intensive work in, again, particularly the last year and a half in talking about the fantasy racism present in D&D, the colonialism and, and imperialism mindset of like, let's just go to a new land. Who's there? Who cares? You know, and like take it over uh, and, and use it for yourself. And, you know, there's definitely been a, a discourse <laughs> as there is on the Internet about, you know, whether this is good or bad. I think any, you know, uh, thoughtful kind of reexamining of the things that we think are re are normal um, or are acceptable is useful at the end of the day. And it's it's something that I think makes it more important and more exciting to use this game system to tell the stories that you want to tell in a way that feels good to you. And certainly to, you know, support indie game designers to try other systems. But if this is something that means a lot to you and that you know, you really want to be in. We find a lot of power in saying like, no, you can't push us out. And like, yes, we are going to, you know, use these reskin the characters, kind of change the ideas, the norms of like who is good and evil. And again, what monsters, like let's use them and their stats as people instead and kind of make the game work for us because the kind of community of like role-playing 
people on the internet and D&D people on the internet has nothing to do with Hasbro. You know, it has nothing to do with Wizards of the Coast. And the fact that so many people are flourishing and making incredibly, you know, queer, incredibly trans, all black spaces in using D&D mechanics to me is like a such a beautiful thing. It makes me so proud to be part of the uh, community. We have to get Ren Fairs caught up with D&D because as much as I enjoy what D&D can be, the last time I went to the a Renaissance Festival, it was just this heteronormative retrograde thing that was pretty nauseating and I wanted to enjoy myself and and just couldn't so maybe there are and maybe I'm just in the wrong part of the country for this but for just to hear the word wench thrown around by dudes is pretty uncomfortable you've just thrown a challenge out to our Ren Fair loving listeners to come on and be a guest with us and have a Ren Fair episode <laughs> please proceed <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, here in Brooklyn, all the Renfair people I know are like trans and queer performers and people from kind of the theater world for whom Renfair is like a really fun second community or our primary community. I think Instagram is is a very good place to kind of meet your people, whether that's cosplayers of color, queer Renfair people, trans Renfair people, whatever it might be, or, you know, RPG podcasters. Like it, it is truly amazing. The microcosm of universes where you can find people who share your very thing that you thought was impossible before. Well, that's great to hear, Amanda. I admit the last one I went to was in a state that begins with a K and ends with an Ansys. So maybe that had something to do with it. Yeah, we talked a little bit about how problematic it can be for for various races, but and also you all have a pretty well balanced group, right? So like it's not male heavy. No, we have uh, two women and one male player, and then Eric is a male GM. I'm sure that's common now, but my guess is early on when this came out in the 70s probably was mostly a bunch of dudes. Just like uh, the video gaming community was, you know, at least mostly represented until more recently. There, It's a huge influx of female or just non, you know, binary players as well. I accept the premise of your argument. <laughs> now what? No, totally. It's something too that I think is, again, like on the internet, you can you can find people like you playing these games and, you know, being kick-ass and awesome. Doesn't mean it's still not, you know, extremely frustrating to get emails about my use of the word like or the tone of my and my female co-hosts uh, voices, which is just the thing that happens on the internet. But it's, it's something that a lot of people are, are making kind of very conscious strides to do. You know, all women D&D podcasts, non-binary and all trans D&D podcasts, all queer D&D podcasts. Like it is it is such a, I think, inherently queer thing to role play, to, you know, play out a, a fantasy or another identity or another version yeah. of yourself in another world. And so just as a, as a queer woman myself, like that has been so unexpectedly welcoming because, you know, for me and in, you know, again, growing up in the late 90s um, and early 2000s, my, you know, younger brother played D&D. And I just, it was never a thing that occurred to me to ask to do, you know, because it was like my brother and his friends playing in the basement for se several hours and eating a bunch of pizzas. And it never occurred to me to kind of walk into a game store and ask or to attend an event or to buy a book because, you know, there was that kind of intimidation of like, if I don't know enough to ask the question I want to ask, am I going to get laughed at? Versus walking into a bookstore, I felt really comfortable. That's a world I knew a lot about and felt like I could at least orient myself before asking for more help. So being able to, again, like see people play it online Line and then at least develop the vocabulary to walk into your game store and say like, yeah, I'd love to have, you know, like a, a new player, like I'd love to attend a new player's night. I'm, you know, picking up my starter kit, you know, any advice and being able to ask those questions. You're not just kind of reliant on the physical community around you, which good and bad for lots of reasons. But I think for anybody who feels a bit out of place or a bit like they're the only person like them in whatever way in that space or walking into that store, you have a second option now. 
Yeah, maybe we should explicitly kind of move to the spectating issue because that has been the thing that you specifically do as a performance and was, I think, the barrier. You know, what I was describing of Brian and I both own the game, reading the books, were fascinated, but like, unless somebody introduced you to it and actually would play it with you, like that is kind of the definition of, I don't want to say a boys club, but like that it has to be a person to person networking. <laughs> and then if you're just outside of any of those communities, like how would you possibly get a hold of it? And it's only now where you've got so many options, I guess Critical Role being the most famous of them. I had never seen it before prepping for this, but that's a, a bunch of uh, voice actors that do it's better and I think meant to be video because there are too many of them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like these, like your show that has three players or adventure zone, three players. And in fact, probably people that you know from, I don't know, are a lot of your fans, people that listen to you on your spirits podcast first. Yes. Many of them came from other podcasts uh, in the multitude collective, but uh-huh. also just D and D podcasting. Like people hear when there's a new D and D podcast and they come in that way. It's just such a big, I wanted to sample a lot of these because there's so many of these and I tried little bits, but it's so hard. I think you have to give something a good like four or five hours of your time before you get a handle on who these people are, what their approach is. It's really even for as a spectator, much less as a player. And Erica's, you know, describing her trepidation of these rules. You got these fat books that are basically reference books. No, (laughs) it's really hard to just like read through the book. And it's kind of not the point. Like you play and then you use the book as needed to figure out, all right, I am a ranger. What am I actually supposed to be doing here? It seems like it takes a lot of effort to make it tolerable to watch. In other words, you guys put a lot of music in and edit it very tightly and do a lot of planning beforehand. Like the danger of of any role playing game, even if you're playing it, is that it's going to be too slow and boring depending on my group. We have whole sessions where it's just we're shopping today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what's happening. So even that, like that's why when we shifted to online, I had to opt out because I I wasn't paying enough attention. Like I, I wasn't giving these guys, it just wasn't, I, I need to have the physical intimidation of other people at the table with me to like make sure I'm fully engaged. You're so right. Like it is so context dependent. And in watching this kind of large, listening to this large amount of D&D videos and podcasts, it's also like, I don't have a hundred hours to catch up on Critical Role. You know, like if I wanted to get into it, the streams are, you know, four plus hours long and happen, I think many times a week, if not, if not weekly. And so for us in starting D&D, it was like, we want to solve a very specific problem. Like we want to make a podcast where you don't have to know how to play D&D. We want to make a podcast that's easy to catch up on and easy to get into, both for just people being able to enjoy it, but also because we want to grow a podcast, you know, and being able to say to somebody like, listen, don't worry about it. We have recaps every few episodes. You can just listen to 10 minutes of recaps and jump right into the new episode. That is the thing that we wanted to do. And in terms of the resources at hand, we had a new player in me, the DM and Eric, and then... Our third player who started the show with us, Brandon, is an editor and sound designer. And so we're like, great, these are the tools we have. So we know that that the show that we make, those are the skills that we have to be able to make a really tightly edited sound design, very immersive story that we will put out as strictly an hour long every other week and then release those recaps as well. So people at the end of each kind of little story arc can just listen to the recap and jump right in. There are other shows that are different, like Dimension 20, which is my favorite, the rebrand of College Humor. And they have a campaign that is beautiful video. And there are 
Let me count six players. Again, too many, more than I would normally say. But because there's video, because there's a full production team, there are miniatures and maps and you can kind of watch the action take place and not kind of forget where everybody is on the field. That's the thing that they are working with. And I think Critical Role, you know, even before they got the budget to make the high quality stuff that they're doing now, they're actors, they're professional actors, and they have great voices, they have great timing, they have those skills to be able to carry that off. And the DM is like an impressionist and voice actor, you know, and can like really make those characters come to life. So whether in terms of like starting a new podcast or starting a new project with your friends, you don't have to have the budget or even necessarily a huge amount of time to edit. You just have to design the campaign and design the show to be a product of what's there, what you have to offer. And is it your perspective that's different? If you're going to not be able to edit, maybe you should stream. Like maybe that's the right kind of medium for you. And so just sort of asking, like, what is it that we want to make? What do we have at our disposal? What will be fun for us? And like, who are we trying to reach? What will be fun for them? That's kind of all you have to do. I hope it's not too hot a take, but I'm going to say it anyway, that I think that D&D is fundamentally not great as a narrative form. It's just the way that it goes. It's, it's, a little just, it's a little too slow. It doesn't tell the story in the way you would tell a story. And that's not a knock on it, but I think what it does is it gives you, Amanda, and people like you this challenge to say, well, in order to overcome that, what we need to do is we need to be interesting and engaging and funny and have like good little micro stories that we tell as we're telling the big story arc. Because when you don't have that, it's death. There's a reason that when you see D&D portrayed in media, it's not actually D&D. Erica mentioned in our planning guide about, should we talk about those episodes of Community? And there are two of them, and one isn't widely available because of an issue regarding blackface. But it's a 23-minute show, and we're not, you can't see a D&D campaign in 23 minutes. They're showing us how D&D would be fun but without actually showing us people really playing it. I mean, that's not it. So I really commend you, Amanda, on how you're able to give an entertaining product in your right, Mark. If, if you have the time to get into it, it does pay off, but it, I think it helps that it's a podcast and you can be doing something else and not totally focused. I can't imagine sitting down and watching. I refuse to. I'm not going to spend time watching someone else play a game. Now, if I'm doing some other activity or driving and listening, then, you know, like anything you're listening to on a podcast, you can kind of come in and out in your brain based on what's going on and and how interested you are in it or when something really exciting is happening, then you have to re-engage. So it's a tall mountain for you to get over, but I think you're doing it. It's also an exciting challenge because we know that people are doing stuff. Like we all listen to podcasts. We started doing podcasting because we love podcasts. Like we didn't get trained in like high audio art. We were we really liked podcasts and started making them. And so that's why we have rules like whenever we make a joke, it's an in-world joke. It's something that the characters would know, something that's about the world. So again, you don't have to have this pre-existing pop culture knowledge. You shouldn't have to like have really loved Ender's Game or whatever to be able to, you know, enjoy the jokes on our show. And so that helps too, where people don't have to like wrench their minds out of the world of the story. They can stay fully immersed. When we are in character, we, you know, use a character voice, but also our editor and sound designer, Brandon, pans that voice a little bit to one side of your headphones so that when Mm -hmm. I'm talking as Amanda at the table and then I'm talking in character as Aggie, my character voice is not that different from my regular voice, but that's on me. (laughs) And you can hear me a little bit to one side of your headphones. So all of those elements kind of help you stay engaged. And when we do combat, like every episode, we've gotten kind of tighter as we go. Now we play for about two hours and edit it down to 75 to 90 minutes. We used to play for fully twice as long as the episode ended up being. And there is so much math, 
pausing, cutting out, saying something twice. It's amazing when you get into podcast editing how much human conversation is repetitive or gesturing at something or somebody answers your question or you come back around to it again or just your tone of voice is different and people get what you mean. And you have to learn to speak and perform differently for a podcast. By now, we're able to do it. But let me tell you, we did the first episode, Join the Party, I think three times before we got to a version of episode one that we felt was good enough to release. Wow. The wedding thing, you redid that multiple times? You actually replayed the game? Yeah. Eric, Brandon, and another player had a version before I was on. And then with me, we did it twice more. It's okay. Like, you don't have to be fully surprised. Eric didn't have to throw, scrap his whole plot and come up with something new. Like, we're performers. We get it. You know, like, you come and, and you do the thing. But yes, it was not fun. It was not funny. <laughs> we had to really get to know each other because some of us had just met days before starting the show. So it was something else. And when I give advice to new podcasters, that's often what I say is like, do your episode three times. And like losing your essay and then typing it again more efficiently and quickly the second time, that happens with podcasting with performing too. Hot take, character voices are overrated. Tell me more. I think if you're really, really good at voices, that's fucking great. And I'm, I'm into it. But I actually really like your voice on your show. It doesn't bother me at all. You have to remember, Jimmy Stewart was one of the greatest actors of his generation always sounded exactly the same. So, you know, <laughs> as long as you're like, your truth is coming through, I don't think you need a fancy voice. Thank you. And Julia, my best friend from kindergarten is on Join the Party with us and basically talks like her husband. We're all from Long Island. I escape without an accent and her husband is extreme, extreme Italian Long Island. Uh, yeah. And so her character voice is basically what both of us would sound like if we had not gone away to college. <laughs> and uh, it's extremely, <laughs> it's extremely exciting for us. For my long running character, I played a, a halfling sorcerer and it's, it's, it was more of kind of, it wasn't of so much a voice, but a, just an approach that it was sort of a Woody Allen sort there you of, go. <laughs> I'm not sure I really understand this. And I think I'm going to kill you now. It wasn't a voice. It wasn't, you know, so I could yeah. kind of lay it on thick or not, depending on exactly what was going on. Again, Manda, you've never done this, not as a performance. And so I'm kind of fascinated by like, there were definitely points in our, that campaign where somebody would say, Oh, you know, I wish we were recording this or I wish you should write a book based on, you should not really, but, but <laughs> uh, you know, leverage all this creativity because it does seem like, you know, it's just disappearing in the wind. But it is, on the other hand, a low pressure situation so that you can be just more, I hit him with my sword again. You can kind of decide at the moment. You don't have res the responsibility to an audience that that might actually be a good thing that not having to be interesting except to your other players and, you know, engage. It just fundamentally changes, I think, your approach to the activity. It does, yeah. And our mission was not, let's make a podcast out of our D&D &D campaign. It was, let's use D&D &D to tell a story in a podcast. And so for us, kind of capturing that, like, heightened reality of your campaign at home might have music, but you certainly don't have sound effects. You don't have, you know, voice effects for when you're texting or calling somebody on the phone or, like, when the Herald is reading your parchment in your high fantasy campaign. But you have that feeling, you have that kind of escapism and that immersion and like, holy fuck, like I can see this whole scene happening in front of me as my DM describes it. It's amazing. And so our goal was to recreate that feeling. And we do it differently. We do it with different tools. It comes across differently. This is not how we would make that story or campaign for home use because it would feel different if it was three hours long and we were all in the same room and no one was listening. 
But that I think in terms of like podcasting advice in general, which I give a lot of just in my job as a podcaster, that's why I kept bringing coming around to it is make intentional choices. You don't have to, you can make different choices from somebody else. You don't have to copy someone else's choices, but being able to know what you're going after and decide how to get there, your method doesn't have to look the same as long as you're kind of going after the destination that you want. How important has D&D been to you in the last couple of years? Has it taken over your life in a certain way? Or is it like, oh, this is one of the podcasts I do? It's like learning a new language and being able to like read signs in the world that I wasn't able to read before. Uh, <laughs> there is so much of pop culture that I get now. I understand dice. I have many of them. They're my children. I love them. And I didn't get that before. And the community of and around Join the Party is truly staggering. We have like a, a Discord you know, with several hundred of our listeners just like hanging out every day. And like people have started role-playing campaigns from our Discord, like a people who met and listening to join the party. So just kind of getting to feel a little bit of that like passion that people, uh, lifelong players and new players bring to the game is such a treat. And it's certainly, it's a big part of our week. We spend several hours every week, you know, prepping for or playing the game. And it's been a very exciting way to pass quarantine and also to chart the the last four years of when I started joining the party, I started getting serious about becoming like a full-time podcaster. So that really has matched to my own personal arc in a way that is pretty amazing for me to think that it's, you know, about four years ago that we started the show. Well, and that is definitely, as a point to semi-wrap up on here, the reason why I chose you and your podcast specifically to reach out to, well, partially the Adventure Zone guys are too famous and won't answer my emails, but, <laughs> but I was excited not only about the gender and inclusion thing that is an important part of this, but just that you have these episodes that like, we're going to release a separate version that will stop and will explain what a saving role is. It's just a really, you know, intentionally user-friendly on-ramp to get into this activity for people that might, whether it's, again, just not having the personal connections or feeling like you're in the target demographic or whatever, or just when we were starting up here, you were saying before we started recording how actually kind of foreign it was to you and your generation that this was something to be ashamed of your geekery, you know, in the way that when Brian and I were growing up. Do you feel like there are still a lot of people that when you're explaining what this new podcast is that you have that, oh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Seems like everybody at least knows what it is now. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I think they do now. I think the turning point was really Stranger Things. I think that was when like my mm. mom mm. heard D&D on something else and like called me immediately and was like, Amanda, it's on Netflix. And I got very excited too. But I think the community episodes and the Stranger Things, you know, season one opening were really the two touch points. But for me now, you know, among my fellow like 29 year old, you know, millennial counterparts, it is sometimes like, oh, yeah, I know D&D is like really trendy right now, but like I'm not into it. So there's kind of like a backlash to the backlash type situation in the Matrix here. I think people understand that, you know, geekery, enthusiasm, being into nerdy shit is is really exciting and really interesting. So I'm very glad that in my adulthood, I haven't had to kind of qualify or feel ashamed of having now having a D&D podcast is kind of the thing to be ashamed of. Like, yes, I know it's another one, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but like, I promise it's really good. You should check it out. Jointhepartypod.com slash start. That's where you can learn how to play the game. But no, it's a cultural development that I am I am pretty fond of. All right, Mark, Erica, Amanda, get out your D20 and roll for initiative. <laughs> hey. No. I got a 14. <laughs> to say goodbye. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Maybe we, if you can stick around for another couple minutes, we'll just ask you a couple more podcasting questions, but we can save that for the supporters. Let's do it. All right. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Amanda. Thank thanks, Amanda, and thanks for listening. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 